Well, good morning to you again. We are taking a uh, momentary hiatus from our regularly scheduled programming, which is the Gospel of Mark, which we intend to complete uh, before Advent comes up uh, in, in a few weeks. And we are going to look this morning uh, at Hebrews chapter 10. Um, and in looking at Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to consider a little bit about our, um, just kind of our path forward in this kind of disrupted and sort of unsettled times. You know, it's a, it's, it's a fact. Uh, whether you want the times to be disrupted or not, they are. Uh, we can, we can, we're experiencing that even now as we uh, gather together and, uh, and worship together. Um, and I want us to consider what that means for us as we launch into a fall that's probably going to look a little different for us uh, and for you. I mean, just in general, as we launch into a fall, in terms of how it is that we can grow and we can thrive as followers of Jesus, we're going to do that uh, by looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there, and I am going to begin reading um, again from verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. You have given us to one another as a gift. Uh, and Father, in these times where it is difficult to take hold of that gift, let us purposely pursue it uh, through your spirit and in your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. have a metal bar sitting right here that I don't really want sitting right there. So now it's gone. Uh, if you've been at Christ the King for a little while, uh, at any period of time, you've probably heard me talk about this group of 12 people uh, that I'm included in that I went to seminary with and that I graduated seminary with, and we committed to one another back in the year 2000 when we were all graduating that we were going to commit to be a part of each other's lives that that was going to be a commitment that we made, to be present in good times, in bad times, as much as we possibly could, as much as God's sovereignty would allow, to meet together once a year. Uh, essentially, we made a commitment to commit to each other. And this past February, uh, before all of this kind of craziness started and we couldn't travel, fortunately, right before it actually, we met together for our 20th year. And in light of all that has happened since that time in our city and in the world, I've been doing some reflecting about the nature of friendship, of, of committed friendship. Because you see, here's the thing. While, while some of us in this group of 12 are, 
many of us in this group of 12 are not friends in the way that we generally define it in our culture these days. Um, You know, the way that we define friendship and the way that we cultivate friendship largely in our culture are people that we uh, connect with, you know, kind of on a natural basis, people that live in our neighborhood, people that are our same vocation, people that play on our sports teams, people that play in our schools, people that are fraternities, our sororities, all those kinds of things. They share a lot of similarities with us. They share the same social status. Often they share the same economic status. Maybe they're in the same industry. And over the course of these 20 years, this group of 12 that I am committed to has gone all over the map on all of those things. We have pastors and professors, we have a counselor, we have a nonprofit administrator, we have a civil engineer who is an expert in water tables in the western U.S., we have an FBI agent. We're not all going to vote the same way in November, We've grown to live and walk in somewhat different economic and somewhat different social strata. We are not exactly friends in the way that most of us would understand it. Yet I would take a bullet for those 11 people. And those 11 people would take a bullet for me. They have seen me through some of the most difficult, some of the hardest, some of the most grueling times of my life, and I've done the same thing for them. We are committed to each other in ways that are not defined by our contemporary notions of what a friendship is. And that commitment is exactly what has made all the difference, because if we didn't have it, we would have, like a lot of other people in time, we would have just grown apart. We would have done different things. We would have become different people and we would have just kind of grown away from each other. What about you and your friendships? You know, a quick scan of the internet right now will lead you to articles regarding the precipitous rise right now in depression, in anxiety, in substance abuse, in suicidal ideations, hopelessness, precipitous rise since even the beginning of March 2020. There are a ton of reasons for this. I mean, some of them are, you know, loneliness, loss of economic opportunity, um, fear of you or a loved one falling ill, PTSD after having suffered illness or somebody close to you suffering illness and being gravely ill, Grief at loss, exhaustion, disrupted rhythms of school and sports and college and social life. These things are all real and they're all very significant. Some commentators believe or predict that the rate of suicide among adolescents and college students will actually rise this fall because of a general sense of hopelessness that this disruption of the rhythms of life may not come to an end. And I think that that's what this sense of, of just being completely out of sorts boils down to in a lot of ways. Alienation, loneliness, a loss of connection. Simply put, human beings are not made to go it alone. We're not built that way. We're not created for isolation. We're created in the image of God. And the fabric of relationship is literally embedded in the Godhead. 
God being three in one and one in three. So community, human interaction, tender touch, what we might call connection is part and parcel of our very humanity. Now, at this point, I can probably see that there's panic setting in in some of you and delight setting in some of you because some of you might be thinking, finally, Clay's going to call out the absurdity of this lockdown and our overaction of this virus. And some of you are panicking, thinking, oh no, Clay's going to call out the absurdity of this lockdown and the overreaction to this virus. I'm actually not going to do either one of those. So rejoice not and fear not. Um, Because I'm not a politician, for sure. I'm not an economist. I'm not a health expert, but I am a pastor. And more particularly, for those of you who are members of Christ the King, I am, I'm your pastor. And I want to raise both a challenge and an opportunity as we get ready to head into a fall where if you're honest with yourself, I think our headlights in most areas of our life maybe extend you know, to your, your fingers like half stretched out at the length of your arm. But I can already see, even in the life of this body, And I can only imagine for those who are not connected to the lifeblood of a church or those who are not connected to Jesus could be experiencing these times because I can see it and feel it in strained marriages. I can see it at families at the breaking point of stress. I can see it in those who are struggling financially and with thoughts of shame due to economic uncertainty and job loss. I can see it in the fear of those who have been called back to work but are anxious about it and don't know what they're going to do with their kids and they don't know how they're going to manage all of that. I can see it in those who are beginning to disengage from the life of the church. Not just this church. I have neighbors and friends that I can see it in as well in other churches because honestly, it's pretty easy to do right now. It's pretty easy to do. And you may have come to the realization that over the last six months, you're not missing that much. You're not missing that much in kind of disengaging from the lifeblood of the community of Jesus. My pastoral concern is the spiritual growth and the health of the members of this church, as well as our gospel witness to our neighbors during a time of severely disrupted rhythms whose duration is uncertain. That's my driving pastoral concern right now. I'll say that again. My pastoral concern is the spiritual growth and spiritual health of the members of this church, as well as our gospel witness to our neighbors during a time of disrupted rhythms whose duration is uncertain. So on the eve of September, when many of us are taking a deep breath regarding new rhythms of school and are getting ready to plunge again into the unknown, continued working from home, the economic uncertainty of Houston that is probably going to only be exasperated in the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter of this year, I wanted us to gain some encouragement and a little bit of challenge from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews which is actually better understood and it would make more sense if we understood it as a sermon and not as a letter, was written in the first century AD to a small group of Christians from a Jewish heritage. So these were Jews who had come to receive Jesus as the Messiah. They were Jewish Christians. 
who formed what we would call a house church in Rome. This is a small group of people. It's not a mega church. It's not a big church. It's a small group of people. It was written in the context of severe persecution of Christians by the emperor Nero. And the entire point of this sermon, the whole thing, the whole book of Hebrews, the entire point is to encourage those Christians and by extension us, us Christians, to persevere in the face of hardship when it appeared that they, and maybe by extension some of us, are ready to give up on Jesus. Now, the church in Rome, it appears, was ready to give up on Jesus and just go back to Judaism. Like, they were thinking, hey, when we were just Jews, our life was pretty good, but we accepted Jesus, all of a sudden people started killing us. This isn't working. And so a lot of the book of Hebrews is talking theologically about how, why would you go back to the shadows of the thing that point to the reality, which is Jesus? And Hebrews 10, 19 marks a major transition in this letter. The author summarizes several conclusions derived from his argument thus far in chapters 1 through 10, and then he launches into important real-life applications that are derived from those conclusions. So you can summarize those conclusions in this one sentence. In Christ, you are completely reconciled to God. In Christ, you are completely reconciled to God. This conclusion comes from all of those verses in Hebrews chapter 10 that start with the word since. These are the premises that he's building his conclusion on. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great high priest. In other words, he's saying because these things are true, and he's established the the truth of these things in the first 10 chapters, because these things are true, And not only true in a vacuum, but they are true for you. Personally true for you if you embrace Jesus as your great high priest. Then it affects the way that you live right now. Your theology actually impacts the way that you live your life on this earth. It means that you can live your life on this earth in steadfast faithfulness in the midst of all of the craziness of a broken world. We do live in a broken world. I mean, everybody now knows it. Even if you didn't think it before, it's almost impossible to realize, to think something different right now. The last eight months have have proven it if you've ever doubted it. And here we get back to that original context of Hebrews because it reminds us that this book is not theology written in a vacuum. It's theology that motivates praxis, It's theology that influences how we live our lives on this earth. All good theology does that, by the way. All good theology leads, uh, all, all orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. That's one way to think about it. If it doesn't, it's not good theology. So what is true is that you are completely reconciled to God in Christ. So what does that mean for your life in the midst of a broken world? Well, a couple of things. A couple of invitations that the author of Hebrews uh, issues to you. The first is this, come. First, come. As verse 22 says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. And you're probably thinking right now, you gave that much introduction for that? That's like a Sunday school answer. And I'm like, yes, because you know what? Most of the time, the Sunday school answer is right. At the end of the day, if you say Jesus, nine times out of 10, you're going to be right. 
It's a simple statement, but it's profound and it's difficult to appropriate. You see, when life takes unexpected turns or we struggle in some way, our natural tendency is to take that as evidence that leads us to a false conclusion. If you're skeptical of the existence of God in the first place, you're going to read that as further evidence that God doesn't exist or that, uh, you know, that he's just not there. If you are a Christian, though, it might become evidence for you that your prayers aren't effective, that God is far away from you, maybe that he's mad at you in some way, maybe that he's punishing you. To that first question of skepticism, I'd actually say it's the opposite. It is actually evidence. The pain and the brokenness and the hurt in this world is actually evidence that God tells the truth. When God says that sin enters into this world and sin disrupts everything and breaks everything and messes everything up, we're seeing it. We're seeing it played out right before our very eyes. We have no answer. We need the intervention of God himself. But if you are a Christian, you must remember here in the context of Hebrews, which was written to that small group of struggling Christians huddled around in somebody's house whispering to each other because they were scared that somebody might come and take them out the door and kill them. You have to remember that when we're told to draw near to God, we're told to draw near to God in that context of life. We're not told only to draw near to God when it's easy for us to do it. When we feel close to him, when we feel like he's close to us, we're encouraged to draw near to God when we're in the meat grinder, where we're in the worst pain and the worst sense of hopelessness in our life. That, the author of Hebrews, that is when he says that God is near to us. You see that? So we draw near to God in confidence, as the author of Hebrews says in verse 22, in full assurance, because you walk into the presence of God, not in fear, but united to Jesus Christ. When Jesus walks into the throne room of his father, figuratively speaking, you walk with him. When you walk into God's presence, what God sees is his son, if you're united to him by faith. We walk in with confidence and we walk in with cleanliness. Once you get into the presence of God, you don't stand there exposed and ashamed. You stand there sprinkled clean, the author of Hebrews says, by the blood of Jesus. Now think about this for just a second. What are some of the practical implications of a confident and a clean approach to God? Well, I think the biggest one for me is the one that I struggle the most to act upon. When things start to get messy in my life, when things start to fall apart around me, when I start to experience stress, do you know what the first thing that I do is? I act. I do something. Nine times out of 10, I do the wrong thing. So I got to learn about this. I mean, honestly, I think God is really trying to teach me. I act, I try to fix it. I run in, I work hard at it. And it's, it can be time consuming because I'll strategize. I'll look at a problem from all of the angles. I'll anticipate objections and then I'll do something. But do you know what I often don't do? I often don't lay it at the feet of God. I often don't take it 
first to God. Why? I think that if I'm honest, it's because I think that the very existence of a hard thing in my life means that God is already mad at me and that he's not going to listen to me if I lay it before his feet. Subconsciously, I think this is something. And so subconsciously, I think sometimes that God is giving me something and he's saying, you know, you made this mess, you cleaned this thing up. But that's pride, do you see? That's actually, that, that can be summarized in, in one horrible word called pride, a belief. A belief that I can do that. Sometimes a belief that I'm smarter than God and don't need him. God tells us to draw near. You're sprinkled clean. He's going to accept you. He's going to hear you. He's going to answer you according to his perfect will, which is better than yours. So first, come, pray, lay it at his feet, give it to him, back away and say, God, this belongs to you. Lead me according to your will. First, come, and then commune. Verse 24 may be one of the most important practical exhortations in the entire letter of Hebrews. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now here's something interesting about the book of Hebrews. We don't have contextual evidence that in this house church in Rome, there was a professional clergyman anywhere to be found. Do you know that? We don't, have that? we don't have evidence in this particular book. We don't know who's leading. We don't know what the structure of this church is. We don't know who's leading this church. We have a lot of evidence in other New Testament books about structuring churches, about elders and deacons and pastors. We do, but we don't know what's going on here in Hebrews. And so he's not writing to a pastor. He's not like, like Timothy. Timothy, you know, in the book of Timothy, you know, you would say, uh, in that book, hey, Timothy, why don't you consider how to stir up the congregation to love and good works? You know, that's, he's talking to the body of Christ that is meeting in that church under severe persecution, and we don't know who's in charge. And he's saying, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. Y'all have to do this or y'all are not spiritually going to survive these times. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying and that's why it's such an important exhortation. Now there's a ton to unpack in this verse and actually I know that it's even risky to bring it up in this context because it's been thrown about a lot in a lot of different you know, contexts on social media which is why I think context matters. Because if you take Hebrews 10.24 out of context, you can use it as a tool to promote guilt. See, Hebrews tells you, come to church. That's, you know, you can use it as kind of a blunt instrument, you know, kind of like a hammer if everything is a nail. But what gets lost in that is the context. Why? Why is it important to find avenues to be together? Why is it important to stir one another up to love and good works? Why is it important uh, to, to, to do this in an organic sense and, and not simply to, you know, to, to wait until programs are created to be able to do that? Why, why, why? 
Well, because it is the way, the only way, to thrive and to grow as a follower of Jesus in difficult circumstances and be faithfully engaged in mission to your neighbor. The author of Hebrews is saying you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus if you try to go it alone. You just can't. You're not going to have the support. You're not going to have the encouragement. The overwhelming weight of the difficulty of life is going to crush you. You're not going to have anybody that's willing to bear those burdens for you. You're not going to be able to bear them all yourself. And you'll drift away. You've got to have other people in your life. So meeting together is essential. But you see, Hebrews doesn't demand that it is done in the context of several hundred or several thousand squeezed together in an auditorium to accomplish that. The recipients of the book of Hebrews who are probably huddled together in a very small group in a back room in a house, probably whispering so that the Roman soldiers wouldn't come in and take them all away. They were not doing that. So this can be accomplished creatively and in a variety of ways. Virtual worship can be a part of this. But if the only connection that we have, if the only connection that that we have had for the last six months and the only connection that we can foresee having for the undefined future is only through virtual worship with your own family, well, that's where things can get troubling Because it's going to be hard to have anybody else encouraging you. As the days and the weeks and the months start to creep closer to a full year of disconnection. We're halfway there. It's been six months since the beginning of March. That will begin to have real spiritual consequences. I was just thinking, and actually I was just thinking it this morning because I saw some people for the first time, that there are some of you, and there are some of you who are watching this right now, that I have not laid physical eyes on in six months. Isn't that crazy? And this is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any kind of a judgment call here. I'm really not. I'm just stating a fact. There are some people who are members of this church that I have not seen, or today was the first day I have seen physically in six months, half a year. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm not. I'm really not. I'm just making a a, a statement of saying, I miss you all. I bet you miss each other, you know? And I know that the old way of keeping up with one another at Christ the King, which for the last 20 plus years has relied not solely, not exclusively, but in a large measure on Sunday mornings, isn't going to be viable as a way forward forever. It's certainly no longer sufficient for your spiritual health and the mission of this church to reach Houston and to renew lives by grace to simply be able to rely on large gatherings here on Sunday morning to be able to keep up with one another and be able to catch up with each other and what's going on in our lives. I, I, I hope it, 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 it I, I value what happens here on Sunday mornings. We're going to launch two services on September 13. Uh, we're going to begin our children's ministry, our student ministry, our nursery, our adult ministry, so we can do those things on Sunday morning but the reality is is we can't rely only on that for our growth for our relationships and for our mission so that's why we're also launching this fall a lot of different opportunities for people to connect both in person and virtually 
in small groups of some sort. Men's and women's Bible studies start up, uh, uh, Bible study signups are ongoing. They have begun. You can sign up to be a part of those. We're also launching this fall what we're calling connection groups. Connection groups are just what they say they are. And there's a reason why we renamed these from community groups. Because you're probably thinking, man, can't y'all just find a name of something and stick with it? Um, no. Uh, I like to change things. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, but, but they're named connection groups for a particular reason because it defines exactly what they are. They are small groups that can be, you can meet together either in person or virtually depending on how you and your family are kind of handling this time for the purpose of relationships, caring for one another, and prayer. That's it. It's not a program with a capital P. It can be done a lot of different ways. It can be organized a lot of different ways. But if you want to be a part of one of those, you can reach out. There's a way to sign up for those. We'll, we're going to help try to begin those. We're going to try to place people in those. Because one of the things that I know is that if we spend, uh, uh, if we spend a lot of disrupted time disconnected, it's going to have consequences uh, for our hearts and for our souls and for our mission um, and for the cause of Christ. So I want to end this sermon with just one action item. It is this. Do what you can to find a way to stay connected to other members of this church body. That's why I began, by the way, with a story about, about friendships that morphed into a life of commitment. Because if, if our group of 12 was only gathered around our similarities, we would have disbanded now. And if the church of Jesus Christ was only gathered around its cultural similarities, it would have disbanded by now. It would be completely and totally ineffective. So there are ways to commit to people that you have differences with. Connection groups are going to run from September through May. We're not, asking you to, we're not asking you to commit 50 years to these. We're asking you to commit a school year to them. Uh, because this school year particularly is what's going to uh, probably have this kind of waxing and waning uh, sense of, uh, of, 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 of difficulty to it. Um, so find a way to be connected. Men's Bible study, women's Bible study, jump into our adult spiritual growth class. Our student ministry is going to be jumping back in and our children's ministry is going to be jumping back in um, because we can't thrive. We can't survive, thrive, and be faithful as followers of Jesus if we try to do that simply by ourselves. So I'll leave you with the words of the author of Hebrews. Let us consider, that's you, Honestly, that's the body of Christ. That's not me telling you what to do. That's the body of Christ. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you give us the gift of the church. You give us the gift of one another. And thank you that the church that you gift is not just like us. What good would that be? What good would that be if everybody was just like me? How would they be able to stir me up to love and good works? How would they be able to encourage me? How would we be able to do that for one another? Father, I pray that this is a season 
where your church around the world actually strengthens and grows because we chip away at what is tangential to it and we laser focus on what is essential to it. The Lordship of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the mission of Christ and help us to stir one another up to love and to those works. In Jesus' name, amen.